This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Despite the undeniable fact that indigenous communities are among the most affected by climate devastation, Indigenous science is very rarely found in mainstream environmental policy or discourse. Environmental scientist, advocate, and author Jessica Hernandez introduces and contextualizes Indigenous environmental knowledge and proposes a vision of land stewardship that heals rather than displaces and generates rather than destroys. In this episode, Dr. Hernandez is joined by Indigenous scholar and activist Melissa Nelson in a conversation exploring her latest book, Fresh Banana Leaves, and how to stop the eco-colonialism ravaging Indigenous lands to restore our relationship with the earth to one of harmony and respect. This episode was recorded during a live online event on February 10th, 2022. A transcript is available at ciispod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out on this lovely night to hear this conversation and celebrate really the work of Dr. Jessica Hernandez and her extraordinary new book. So I am so happy to be speaking with you this evening from the ancestral lands of the Salt River Valley of Phoenix, Arizona, the traditional homelands of the Akamel Autumn and Peeposh peoples of the Maricopa Indian community. I honor their ancestors, their contemporary communities, their sovereign nation, and their future generations. So, um, Jessica, I am just so happy to be here with you. If you'd like to introduce yourself further or share us where you're at tonight. My name is Jessica Hernandez, and I'm calling from the ancestral lands of the Duwamish peoples, also known as Seattle, named after Chief Seahoff. I also want to ask for permission from any elders who are present here today to be able to speak in front of them. Thank you for hosting this conversation, and I'm excited to also be in company and, and share this virtual space with you. Ah, oh, wonderful. Well, it I've just been devouring your book, and um, you can't really see it, but it's just filled with post-it notes and, and questions and comments. And um, I just really, first of all, thank you for articulating so many profound, important concepts of our time in such a succinct and really easy and, and not easy to read because some of the concepts are complex, but anyone can pick it up and read it and understand it. And that's really important as indigenous scientists and scholars to make things legible and understandable by anyone. And I'd like to hear a little bit more for our listeners who are not familiar with the indigenous peoples that you come from, uh, the Zapotec and the Maya 
Chorty, I'm sorry, I'm not sure how to say the second word, the Maya Chorty. And I loved learning about, you know, your mother's people and your father's people. And again, those of us in North America may not be as familiar with the indigenous peoples of Mesoamerica. So if you could share a little bit about those rich heritages, that would be lovely. Yes, thank you for your question. So the Maya Chorti people, we have a strong lineage that dates to our ancestors who built the Great Pyramids. Oftentimes when we hear people talk about the Mayan cultures, they kind of talk about us in the past tense because, you know, there is this misconception that the Mayan civilization actually collapsed. But that's not the case. It's just that our people were displaced in different um, throughout South Mexico, all the way through Central America. So the Maya Chorti people, our nation, we're divided by three borders, the borders of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. And through my paternal side, we come from the El Salvador um, side of the Maya Chorti nation. And unfortunately, during the 1980s, um, starting from the 1960 and it ended in the 1990s, we experienced a genocide that was coined as the Central American Civil War. And the United Nations has called that and labeled that a genocide. But, you know, it's something that people still dismiss from those conversations. So a lot of our people were displaced from our homelands and, you know, eventually they made it to indigenous lands in the United States or Canada. And through my father's displacement, he was able to meet my mother in her Oaxacan Pueblo, the Zapotec Nation, which is closer to the coast. Um, and the Zapotec people, we still hold a matriarchal society. We have a third gender called that we known as the Muses, who mm. are, you know, born you know, biologically male, but they also embody the feminine soul. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is constant battles to ensure that we can keep our matriarchal society and also our third gender, because, you know, as we all know, colonialism, which introduced patriarchy and also homophobia, transphobia, continues to try to infiltrate itself into our nation. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you so much for sharing about that. That's wonderful to hear. And to be descendants of the people who made those incredible pyramids. I love how you talked about even modern physics can't really figure out how, you know, the wisdom and the brilliance and the technology of your ancestral knowledge to build such extraordinary um civilization. So um, today, are you still very connected to some of those people or has it been very challenging due to displacement and war and diaspora? Yeah, we're still connected because unfortunately, my parents were the only ones displaced. And that happens because my father was the eldest in his family. And my mother, you know, usually none of her family is displaced. So we still have like a close connection to home. But I do notice that, you know, my my Achorti environment still hold on to the trauma that my dad carries, especially when, you know, there was a genocide that he mm. unfortunately had to experience as a child. So I think that mm. I see how my mom carries her relationships when we go back to her lands versus how my father carries his relationships with the environment when we go back to his land because, you know, he becomes more quiet. Um, he's a little bit more, you know, kind of like closed off. And, you know, it's something that I have experienced. So, yes, we still hold on to those relationships, but obviously they are different based on, you know, the trauma that our environments carry in that sense. 
Of course. And I want to ask you a bit more about historical trauma, but later in the conversation, <laughs> um, I think the way you, you address it is really powerful in the book. And um, I know that you call yourself unabashedly and unapologetically an indigenous scientist, which I love. And you've really emboldened me. I have science degrees and I've still carried some of that, like you said, shame or not shame, but embarrassment or concern that, oh, I'm not a real scientist because I don't do statistical analysis or all this quantitative data crunching um, that we think of with you know, physicists or mathematicians or even ecologists who do a lot of modeling now and, and a lot of quantitative work. So I want to hear you share what it means to you to be uh, a proud, unapologetic indigenous scientist and how that differs um, or is similar to some of the identities of the Western scientists that you work with. Yes, I think it's it's an experience that we both share, right? That we were, you know, trained educationally in the Western sciences. And I think that, you know, oftentimes when we talk about indigenous knowledge systems, people in the environmental discourse and the environmental sciences refer to it as traditional ecological knowledge. And there are people in our communities who still use that term. But personally, I prefer to use indigenous science just because scientists tend to kind of fixate themselves on the traditional aspect and they continue to speak about our people in the past tense mm -hmm. while forgetting that our knowledges are currently adapting, especially due to climate change impacts, especially to the displacement that, you know, the majority of indigenous people peoples we had to face, whether it was internal, you know, within the borders or external, right. like outside of the borders. And I think that being trained in those Western sciences has allowed me to understand that the knowledges that we are holding and still continue to hold as indigenous peoples are very similar to the sciences because they adapt. We have years of observations that don't necessarily translate to that numerical data that you were mentioning, the statistics, but it's knowledge that can help heal our planet. And we have also seen how a lot of our indigenous science has also been co-opted by you know, scientists, a great example that I like to give is permaculture, right? That mm -hmm. that was science from the Aborigine people in Australia that, you know, Bill Mollinson, if that's his name, I don't remember, yes. he yes. coined it as permaculture and he is considered the Popularized founder. Popularized it. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I think that, you know, for me, I see it more as a science, but um, not to negate that, you know, there are people in our communities who refer to it as indigenous knowledge or traditional ecological knowledge, but just being trained or having that scientific lens allows me to realize that it's a science in itself as well. Yes, absolutely. No, I completely agree. And, um, you know, I've been very much inspired by the work of Greg Kehete, which I'm sure you have too. And his great book, Native Science, really outlines um we cover almost everything in the scientific method, except that ongoing validation, even though we validate it in our way, it's not validated in the Western Eurocentric way of validating knowledge, but our knowledge is validated every time, you know, we go in and gather foods in the way that we have or hunt a buffalo the way that our ancestors did, or for you gathered, you know, grew corn and, and, took care of the milpas. So that's a confirmation and a validation of our knowledge every time we have a new generation of people to continue to have that relationship with our food. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. 
And one of the biggest distinctions that Kehete makes about Western science and indigenous science is what he calls the metaphoric mind, and that Western science is so based on the rational mind or the logical mind and really dismisses dreams and stories and language and poetry and dance and chanting and all those things that are considered culture. And so the title of your book, Fresh Banana Leaves, is certainly a metaphor. I mean, it's a real powerful story of your father's survivance. But it's more than that, too. And throughout the book, you even stories about the banana um, tree and how it's been a survival plant, and yet it's not native. And so you grapple with that relationship with that beautiful plant. And if you could just unpack that a little bit for our readers, I think that would be really great. Yeah, thank you for that question. And I think that, you know, it's important to acknowledge that, you know, like you mentioned, banana trees are not native to Central America, but they were introduced during the death of our indigenous lands when our indigenous lands were sold in multitudes of acres through land grabs to these international agricultural corporations that introduced the monoculture that we see um, in the form of plantation. So bananas was one of the crops that was introduced during that process where, you know, our lands were commodified to export, especially outside mm. of our lands. And I think that through banana trees, they have become a staple in our foods. Like when we make our tamales, we consume a lot of platanos and it's like become a tradition of foods for many of us. And I think that why I decided to name it Fresh Banana Leaves is just based on the story that my father kind of shared with me where the teaching is that nature protects you as long as you protect nature. So during that story, um, you know, I have to go back to when he was recruited he was 11 years old when he was recruited by the deaf squads um, not necessarily the deaf squads but the deaf squads came to his um, canton his little pueblo and they burned down his home because they couldn't find him they had come and attempted to kind of force forcefully to recruit him to the deaf squads which is the army army side of the rebellion and he was so angry that the deaf squads actually burned down his home luckily his parents I mean his mom and his siblings were not there because his father had passed by then um, so he went to the, you know, the lands, the lands to find the guerrilla. So he joined the guerrilla because I think that during the Central American Civil War, because we had lost a lot of our men, they started recruiting children as young mm -hmm. as 11. So he recalls how three years passed since, you know, he was receiving his training and was forced to fight in the war. So at the age of 14, during that time, his encampment, the guerrilla encampment was bombarded and he recalls seeking refuge under a banana tree and this banana tree was a tree that he used to climb he used to play with it was his way of mm. escaping his reality mm -hmm. as a child going through those hard times and through you know when that when he saw that attack he went under this banana tree and he saw how when the bomb dropped instead of the bomb igniting it the banana leaves kind of wrapped it in a way that it prevented it from igniting and you know many people can say oh it was just a bomb that was malfunctioned that wasn't created correctly mm -hmm. but my dad believes that it was the banana tree that saved his life Protected and it was because him. yeah and it was that relationship that he had built as an innocent child right even mm -hmm. though he didn't see himself as a child anymore because when I asked him you know were you so you were a child he was like no I was an adult but I was like wait a minute you were 11 how is that oh an adult um, yes. but that that was the premises of why I named it that because you know it gave us a fresh start it you know it's the reason why I'm alive here you know speaking to you and why why I was able to write his story and write the book as well 
Mm, beautiful, really powerful story. And I love how you reframe, you know, we both do work in restoration ecology and um, the whole idea of, you know, restoring native landscapes, um, restoring native communities. They obviously go together, what Robin Kimmer calls biocultural restoration or reciprocal restoration, which is so linked. And it's one of the best ways that we can understand the link between nature and culture, which for indigenous peoples, we never separated anyway. Um, but for Western ecologists, there's almost like this war on invasive species, which is so ironic because it's usually white settlers talking about a war against French broom or Scotch broom or whatever it may be, and wanting to, you know, eradicate this alien species. And you really relate to that in terms of, again, being displaced and being an immigrant, and also seeing that not all quote, invasive or foreign plants are negative and they're incorporated like the banana has been so beautifully incorporated into your culture. And so if you could just share any more about really relating to the plant also as like a new immigrant and what it means to be a good settler as opposed to being an invasive settler. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, you kind of mentioned something, right, that invasive species are often, we are taught to, like, violently kind of eliminate them from the landscapes. And oftentimes, um, my elders told me and reminded me that, you know, invasive species are someone's relatives or their displaced relatives. So we still have to follow our protocol to remove them. We still have to ask for their permission. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that Western science doesn't really understand. And it's unfortunate, right, because you mentioned a lot of these scientists, they're kind uh, violently removing their plants, their relatives, because a lot of these plants were introduced from Europe. So a lot of people who have European ancestry, that's their displaced that's relative. That's their relative, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that um, with restoration, you know, it's not to negate that invasive species actually do have an impact and sometimes are negative impact in our landscapes. But in the cases, for instance, of banana trees, they have become also our relative while they were displaced. We were able to accept them because they were a food source during the the Central American Civil War because, you know, now you can find banana trees anywhere throughout Central America. And I think that um, when we start to understand the relationships that indigenous peoples have, where we show that respect even to displaced relatives or displaced um, plant relatives, it kind of also allows me to, you know, kind of see the similarities of when we talk about immigration, right? A lot of the um, immigration discourse kind of forgets to um, accept the fact that it's indigenous peoples from Central America who are being displaced. It's Afro-indigenous peoples from Haiti, the Caribbean, who are being displaced because mm -hmm. of those climate change impacts coupled with political turmoil, coupled with the ongoing oppression that these settler countries are enacting against indigenous and Afro-indigenous peoples. And I think that, you know, it's the American value, right? Where, oh, if you're not American, you're an immigrant, you're a legal alien, whatever are the negative connotations, but they forget to realize that we're still indigenous peoples from the Americas and there weren't any settler borders created until right. nationalism. Very recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nationalism became a thing and created these borders. I think that I see the parallels of how colonization has also infiltrated or is very present in restoration, conservation because of those nuances in the way that we perceive invasive species or in this case, also displaced people. 
Mm-hmm. Wow, so, so insightful, such great connections. And yeah, you, you know, I, I love that you don't pull any punches in terms of really naming you know, eco-colonialism and settler colonialism and how it's embedded in the academy and Western sciences and in the conservation field. And so much of your work as an indigenous scientist is to decolonize from that. And just so we're all on the same ground, if you could just define, you know, how you define settler colonialism and eco-colonialism. And before that, I was just very moved to and, and profoundly uh, influenced by how you defined your understanding of settler colonialism living in three different nation states. That was just fascinating. So if, you know, and really powerful between, um, yeah, the different countries. So if you can share a bit about that would be wonderful. Yes, thank you. So oftentimes in the United States, right, we see people from Latin America as people of color. So during that positionality, people, you know, who are Latinx or who are considered Hispanic forget to self-reflect on their positionality back in our homelands. So, you know, it's kind of like the narrative between the oppressor versus the oppressed and how the oppressed in this country becomes our oppressors mm -hmm. back in our lands. Mm -hmm. So I think that that kind of shows a bigger picture of what settler colonialism is, especially how it's different because there's a different whiteness or a white identity that's uplifted in each country so white people from latin america are considered people of color in the united states yes, right. and it doesn't say that it doesn't mean that they don't face any type of oppression because there is nationalism there is xenophobia and the anti-immigration discourse but it kind of people forget that their whiteness is something that's oppressing us back in our lands and i think that navigating through three different settler colonialism makes me understand how settler colonialism at the end of the day is uplifting whiteness and how people who embody that identity don't really self-reflect on their positionality and it's sometimes they take it personal right like even when we bring up like white supremacy whiteness if you're uncomfortable you are going to kind of be defensive when indigenous peoples or black people or any people of color are mentioning that and then it kind of gets a little bit more tricky because you're like talking about people of color or people who are considered people of color in the united states who are also embodying whiteness when they go back to latin america and i think that settler colonialism has allowed me to understand that at the end of the day it's still oppressing black people it's still oppressing afro-indigenous peoples and indigenous peoples whose lands they're occupying and nobody wants to do do anything right because nobody wants to give up their power and privilege because that's something that makes them comfortable that's something that has helped them so much so i think that you know it's interesting to navigate those three layers of settler colonialism as you mentioned yeah that's powerful it's so so insightful and you know the way that class and gender also intersect with those different identities is is really part of the picture Mm -hmm. yes, and you really so much of your work does talk about displacement and relocation and diaspora, along with, you know, the profound sense of the deep roots and sense of uh, identity that indigenous indigenous peoples have with our ancestral lands. So can you share a little bit about how you personally balance that tension between kind of the longing for homelands living in the diaspora, but also the belonging, the sense of belonging that you have as an indigenous person and the way you relate to the lands that you currently live on? 
Yes, thank you for your question. I think that kind of reminds me of my grandmother. Something that she always told me were, you know, as the only grand, you know, daughter displaced because, you know, like I mentioned, only my parents were displaced. She would always tell me that anywhere I walked on that wasn't necessarily our ancestral lands, I was kind of walking into someone's home and that someone's home are the indigenous peoples and indigenous lands where I'm stepping on. And I think that through that, she taught me that I had to build relationships, not just with the indigenous lands, which sometimes in land acknowledgements, we tend to focus more on the land aspect, but we f forget to focus on the relationship aspect that we should also build with indigenous peoples who are still alive, who are still, you know, trying to steward their lands, even though, you know, management policies, laws, regulations prevent them from doing so. Yes. And I and I think that, you know, through that, she always taught me that, you know, I was walking in someone's home as an unwelcome guest and I had to build those relationships to be welcome into someone's home. And I, and I, you know, oftentimes I think that, you know, we all want to go back to our lands, but there is the ongoing oppression. There's still the ongoing violence, especially the persecution of indigenous peoples who advocate for our environments and lands, especially in Latin America. And I think that, you know, unless we can undo settler colonialism that is impacting us negatively, many of us in the diaspora won't be able to return back to our lands. So true, so true. And I was very fortunate to work with um, the Tibetan community living in diaspora in the San Francisco Bay Area who um, were considered, you know, refugees, uh, immigrants, and didn't have citizenship. And many of them were second, third generation living in refugee camps in India, had never even been to Tibet. Their parents or grandparents had to flee for their lives um, in the 50s. And yet, you know, they're, they're their languages, their songs, their Losar, they just celebrated their new year with the new moon. Um, the way that they kept their culture alive and praying to their sacred mountains and to their sacred deities um, through their foods and their languages and stories was just so inspiring to me that they've never been to their homeland. They probably will never go to their homeland. Mm -hmm. And yet they have that deep bond, which really gets to that spiritual essence of our relationship to our land. It really transcends physical space. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, the Tibetan people are also a great example, right? Because um, they cannot return back to their homelands because it's still being, you know, there's still colonialism going where people are trying to take over their lands. And, you know, as a result, they're being persecuted and they had to seek refuge in India and obviously in other parts of the world as well. That's right. That's right. Yes. And your um, beautiful subtitle to, you know, healing indigenous landscapes through indigenous sciences. As indigenous peoples, I think that's just medicine to our ears. We're like, yes, you know, say it. It's on a book, you know, it's on podcasts, it's on the radio. You're really getting that message out there. And yet I think for many non-indigenous peoples, there may not be an understanding of really exactly what that means. So um, if you could just say a little bit more about your definition of healing indigenous landscapes. Yeah, so I often um, feel that non-Indigenous peoples think that I wrote a guidebook on how to heal Indigenous <laughs> lands through Indigenous science. And I think that that kind of loses 
you know, kind of goes against the message that I was trying to make, where we're, we have to center indigenous peoples of the lands that we're currently occupying, settle, settled in, or currently living, so that we can heal our landscapes. And obviously, you know, I'm not going to be um, sharing sacred knowledge, because oftentimes people don't understand that some indigenous science is sacred knowledge that our cultural protocols do not allow us to share unless we have permission. And I think that that kind of manifests itself in the fact that a lot of our indigenous science that has been shared has been co-opted or published without, you know, our permission. And I think that one of my main areas is that um, as Indigenous peoples, we still carry trauma, but we also carry the healing because, you know, we're not sitting in a corner, not being able to do anything because otherwise our cultures wouldn't have survived colonization. We're still thriving. We're still adapting. And genocide doesn't really necessarily define our cultures or communities, but it's something that's still embedded in our history, yet it's ignored, right? Especially in mainstream educational discourses. And through that, I'm just putting the message that we had to center ourselves, especially our spirituality, because that's the core of our indigenous science, our spirituality, mm-hmm. where unlike Western sciences, we're told that in the name of objectivity, we have to remove ourselves from the science. But through indigenous science, we are told to put ourselves forward because we are a part of nature. Nature is not a part of us, right? Because our creation stories always kind of you know, are rooted in the fact that the creator created us from in, from our environment. And I think that that is like a, like something that I see people finding as a blur line because they thought that, you know, or they think the book is going to be a guidebook on how to, <laughs> you know, heal indigenous landscapes, which, you know, one book cannot do. And, and it's a call for us to center and uplift all these indigenous communities globally as well. Yes, I love that. And it really speaks to what Enrique Simon says is that all indigenous knowledge is local knowledge. All indigenous knowledge is local knowledge, not meaning that it can't be useful or important in terms of understanding transnationally, you know, with indigenous solidarity movements globally. But, you know, what's a Zapotec science is going to be for your Zapotec homeland and an Anishinaabe science is going to be for my homeland and uh, Ohlone science is for the Ohlone people. And I think that's really a challenge for the Western Eurocentric mindset that is always looking for universal knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Something that supposedly can be um, utilized anywhere in the world. Why do you think it is that you know, Western Academy and Western science is so, I would say, almost obsessed with this idea of, quote, objective universal knowledge, whereas indigenous peoples are so comfortable with the idea that, you know, my sacred mountain is right here, but your sacred mountain is right there and there's no problem, right? (laughs) That's the center of your universe. This is the center of my universe. And um, that's okay. And that seems to be a fundamental schism between indigenous knowledge systems and for lack of better words, Western or Eurocentric worldviews. Yeah, thank you for your question. And I think that it just reminds me of what I'm currently doing in environmental physics, right, where physics has separated itself from any societal impacts, from any societal implications, where, you know, it's not social political, it doesn't really have any justice components to it, because, you know, it's this abstract concept where nothing intercepts with society which is not the case right Mm. we think of physics we think of the concept of energy and how that's a core 
term and concept that's taught in physics education. And we know that energy industry is kind of resulting in a lot of climate change impacts. Mm -hmm. But yet physics continues to separate the concept of energy from society, where the concept of energy is something that cannot be perceived or seen. And we know that that's not the case. And I think that I disagree that Western science is objective because when we look at the mm. history, it comes from European white cisgender men who yes. had philosophical views where religion was also Western Christianity religion was, was also very involved. Mm. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, for me, it's not objective, but I guess because it's a dominant culture, it's a dominant norm. It, it seems to be objective. Right. But. I don't think it is. <laughs> yes, no, I don't either. I don't either. And I love um, Vandana Shiva's great work, she, uh, Monocultures of the Mind, where she really <laughs> deconstructs that idea that um, Western European science is a local knowledge from a little island in Northern Europe, right? And <laughs> a couple little islands there, and it's not a universal knowledge, but it was we think it's universal knowledge because it was spread through cognitive imperialism. Um, so it's kind of like this trick <laughs> that, that, that we've all be have believed, but indigenous people, I don't think ever did. And, um, so that's an important, you know, cognitive difference that I think really creates a division and a tough place in academia. And I loved how your book asked, you asked your elders questions, your family members questions, and then you asked yourself questions. <laughs> and there was something about, you know, how, how every day, like how hard is it for you to work in academia and what are some of the challenges or obstacles that you face? We know that, you know, in your book, you're, you talked about your father's really tragic story of having to go to war at such a young age and being in physical war. And yet you, you know, and a lot of us are kind of word warriors, what Gerald Visner calls word warriors in the academy. Right. Fighting for spaces. So what are some of your daily struggles and opportunities in higher education and in science that you're um, grappling with? Yeah, sometimes like I think of just the tokenization that happens with a lot of indigenous peoples, especially in the academy where, you know, we are told to speak for all, like you were mentioning before, oh, yes. we, to speak for all indigenous peoples. And oftentimes mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I can only speak for myself. And sometimes I cannot even speak for my entire community mm -hmm. because we don't, you know, we're not all the same. We're not going to all agree on the same um, concepts or the same themes that I bring up. And I think that that's something that Western society still is trying to address where you were mentioning also how it's trying to make us all a universal thing where it doesn't necessarily address our intersectionalities, our different identities, how it's place-based, how it's not universal, how it can be applied anywhere because that's not respecting indigenous sovereignty in that place. And I think that that's the biggest obstacle I face. I also see it how... Um, we continue to be research subjects or areas of expertise where, especially in the environmental sciences, right? You see a lot of non-Indigenous scientists who are like, I'm an expert in Indigenous communities, mm -hmm, but you don't mm -hmm. see them applying that to other communities. So right. I think that, you know, it's, it's kind of become a commodity where Indigenous cultures and knowledge is something that they can be consumed, especially in the environmental sciences. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, as Paulo Freire and so many have said, our Western education, it's a banking model. It's, it's a capitalistic model of education. We buy 
information, we digest it, we consume it, we deposit it, we extract it. So it's not really a living understanding of learning and knowledge from indigenous worldviews. And yet we're trying to indigenize the academy in various ways. And I know that you're teaching some really exciting classes that you spoke about last semester. And um, how are you trying to in bring in some of these uh, concepts of indigenous learning processes in your classroom? Yes, thank you for the question. So I taught in climate science, and I think that there was that pushback that I received from some students where I was integrating indigenous voices, why indigenous science was important, because, you know, as a student, you have normalized that in your introduction in Western classes or, you know, introduction um, science classes, you're going to just focus on the Western science, how to do the math, how to, you know, find the calculations, especially in climate science. So I think that by me providing lived experiences, case studies, there were um, seeing how climate science is not necessarily just focusing on the physics models that are, you know, um, basically putting the data for our greenhouse emissions, but it's also focusing on the people, the experiences that they're having as a result of climate change, how it's indigenous communities who are being impacted by climate change impacts and how that's often ignored in climate science, where we focus more on greenhouse gases, where we focus more on blaming the agricultural, in you know, agricultural systems, which I mean, they're responsible but it's still kind of forgetting to look at the bigger picture, how we are, you know, seeing activism kind of be put in the front and center, but it's not really centering indigenous peoples who are currently experiencing climate change impacts. Even looking at the Pacific Islanders, there's a lot of indigenous peoples who, whose islands, you know, are kind of being lost because of sea level rise. Yet, when we look at climate justice and the activism that has built momentum, they're nowhere to be included or, you know, uplifted or found. So I think that through that, students were receiving something different, but because it was something different, I did receive like some receptive students who were like, wait a minute, why is this, you know, being talked about in this class? Mm -hmm. How is this related? But I think that, you know, if we're not always going to get to all the students, but if we can get to some students who, you know, are like, thank you for, you know, telling me this. I was able to bring up how Indigenous peoples continue to be forgotten in this class. You know, it's like, you know, it, it kind of builds those seeds and plants mm -hmm. those seeds and hopefully they will build into, you know, trees or flowers. But obviously, you know, it's not always going to be the case, especially students who are coming in from that Western science lens. Exactly. And are not really prepared to for self-reflection and, um, you know, a different way of understanding knowledge. Yeah, I've, I've struggled with some of that as well. And, you know, in Western education, we think we have a right to knowledge. And in Indigenous uh, education, we have responsibilities to knowledge. And so, you know, it's a very different approach. And, you know, we roll up our sleeves and like do stuff with our knowledge. And I've been really impressed to see how you've really immersed yourself in the Puget Sound, the Salish Sea with the Duwamish and all the incredible tribes, proud tribes of the Seattle area. And, um, you know, the climate change issues are very, very poignant there because of sea level rise and um, the salmon fishing. And um, have you been doing some restoration work in the um, Puget Sound there or supporting some of the tribes and some of their environmental justice issues? Yes, definitely, especially um, in Daybreak Star in the Uncultural Center. That's where I 
had kind of did my project for my dissertation where the mm-hmm. community um, told me what they needed from the environment as opposed to me. You know, like you were saying how as scientists, we we're trained to make up the question or kind of tell the community what would be beneficial for mm-hmm. them without including their knowledge. And I think that there is um, a soil project that I'm hopefully, you know, going to start doing in South Seattle um, and working with the Black and Indigenous solidarity that hopefully, you know, flourishes into something across, you know, nationally to kind of empower our communities, especially seeing how settler colonialism is intersected in both of our histories. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I love how in your book, too, you talk about um, urban indigeneity. And that's something I also focus on in the San Francisco and Oakland Bay Area and also now here in the Phoenix Valley. And 70% of Native Americans live in urban areas and then indigenous communities um, living in diaspora from from India, Tibetans and, you know, Maya from uh, all over the place and mosquito from Nicaragua. And so really urban areas have become the these beautiful multi-ethnic indigenous hotbeds of solidarity and activism and justice issues. And not that we're not without, you know, issues because we're all at different levels, like you said, of colonization and decolonization and um, settler uh, status. But it's very exciting to recognize um, indigeneity in urban areas. And I really... um, love that you uplifted that in your book. Can you say a little bit more about, you know, your work and and the importance of honoring indigeneity in urban spaces? Yeah, thank you for your question. And I think that it goes back um, to that um, statistic that you mentioned, right, that 70% of indigenous peoples live in urban areas. And I think that that has a lot to do with the opportunities that are offered back in our homelands. Um, that's more of the internal displacement that continues to happen in this nation, settler state, the United States. And I think that, you know, sometimes we even forget how urban areas are still indigenous lands. They just yes. have undergone a lot of that eco-colonialism, right, that changes to their environments through organization, through, um, you know, tech you know, companies. Technology. And, yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I think that it's important for us to honor those as well and see how our knowledge is, like we were both discussing, may are being like taken and brought to the urban settings where we're not losing the indigeneity like many people might believe because, you know, we're no longer living in our ancestral lands. Mm-hmm. And yet we're in being enriched by learning from each other. You know, we have uh, the Cultural Conservancy has a farm just outside of San Francisco and we have Mayan farmers come and teach about their corn and tell their stories of corn. We have Seneca corn farmers talk about, you know, their relationship with a different variety of corn from the North Country. Um, We have, you know, Yaqui people talk about their relationship with certain beans, and then Navajo talk about their beans. So it's almost like a new type of uh, indigenous internationalism in urban areas. And I think it's very enriching and um, showing that we are modern people and not just in the past. And we're adapting always and evolving. Yeah. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I love you did a whole chapter on ecofeminism and really uplifting, you know, the women leaders of the Zapatista movement that was so powerful and such a watershed movement for indigenous rights um, globally. 
And if you could just, you know, share a little bit more about how you define ecofeminism, and especially indigenous women's role as environmental land steward. Yeah, thank you for that question. I think that's that's something that I always struggle with, um, especially not necessarily the concept of ecofeminism, but the fact that my Zapotec nation, especially my pueblo, um, because, you know, as a nation, we're made up of different pueblos, how we have maintained that matriarchal society where it's the women, you know, who are leading our tables where every woman has to speak before the men can actually speak. And it's like a small bubble because when you leave, you know, Juchitan or you leave your pueblo, you know, you're kind of faced with patriarchy where you know as a woman you have to be quiet you cannot speak against the Mm -hmm. men especially cisgender men and I think that through ecofeminism it's kind of like something that I find myself in the gray area because you know ecofeminism teaches us that you know as women we have a stronger relationship with nature because of the nature and nurture situation but yet in my communities you know it's it's a matriarchal society but then I'm constantly fighting you know, the patriarchy. And I think that that's something that we all face and how patriarchy has infiltrated some of our pueblos in our nation, where some of our pueblos are no longer a matriarchal society and how, you know, this my little pueblo is still trying to fight to prevent that from infiltrating. And I guess with ecofeminism, it kind of uplifts indigenous women and, you know, women in general and how it shows how it's our indigenous women who are leading a lot of our environmental movements, who are leading a lot of our resistance movement and the Zapatistas is a great example because it was something that indigenous women led, but because of patriarchy, um, Comandante Marcos, who was a cisgender man, became the face of that movement, even though he was, you know, being led by these strong indigenous women. So that's how ecofeminism kind of manifests itself in our communities. But then we see in, in outside of our community, the patriarchy always continues to give the men authority and also the the rain of the movement exactly and it's really a remnant of colonialism too because so many um, times a lot of native cultures not all but many native cultures of the americas really were more matrifocal matrilineal matra you know women-centered and when colonialism came in and christianity it was always about privileging the men and um, of course whenever you get are given a lot of power and privilege, it's hard to give that up. And it becomes a habit or a pattern that has been internalized in a lot of our indigenous communities, along with homophobia, as you mentioned earlier. So there's a lot of um, peeling that has to be done. Yeah. And speaking of, I love that. I love all your food metaphors in your book, um, peeling the onion of decolonization and how you share with your students that, you know, the decolonial process, it's kind of an ongoing process like peeling an onion. Um, Can you share one of those layers of the onion with us? Yeah. So the the ways that I kind of give a because, um, you know, as indigenous peoples, we tend to be more visual, um, give a visual example to students. is like it's peeling an onion, right? Because settler colonialism is not just one layer that we have to dismantle. When we talk about decolonize the academy, it's not just doing one thing to decolonize it. It's multiple layers that we have to deconstruct or dismantle in order for us to truly decolonize the academy. And I often like to use the metaphor of peeling onion layers because, you know, there's going to be healing that our communities have to undergo and there's going to be a lot of crying 
pain because you know our tears are our healing mechanism especially from our body and you know that was the metaphor that i came up with because you know we always kind of shed tears when we're peeling our <laughs> or cutting always up yes <laughs> when you peel your onions you're left with your tears exactly and then eventually a tasty meal <laughs> but you got to get through some layers of tears definitely yeah well, I'd like to read one little section at the end of your book about healing. Um, it's not, it's not going to ruin the book for you who haven't read it yet. Um, but it's just a, such a beautiful, succinct, you have a way to just of articulating complex concepts in these really succinct ways. I just love that. And you say, I strongly believe that in order to start healing indigenous landscapes, Everyone must understand their positionality as either settlers, unwanted guests, or welcomed guests. And that is ultimately determined by the indigenous communities whose lands you currently reside on or occupy. Yeah. And I think there is a reckoning happening, you know, since 2020 and um, the racial justice movement with Black Lives Matter and so many converging crises, including the, the pandemic and the economic crisis and climate change. There is a, we're in exciting times. There's tumult and um, people are beginning to recognize whose land am I on? And it's so refreshing. I've been doing this work for probably a couple more decades than you. And, you know, when I used to talk about returning native lands to native hands, people would be like, whoa, that's private property. That's sacrosanct. That's, you know, you can't talk about that. And now the land back movement and the land rematriation movement and it's, and the environmental justice movement, things are strengthening and, and building. Um, and would you like to um, share a story about an environmental justice victory or um, uh, environmental project you've worked on that you felt worked really well, that was something very successful? Yeah, so I, I can just recall the recent uh, Mayan-led environmental movement where the Maya Kekchi community, and it's something that we supported through the International Mayan League, how they were leading a resistance movement, a peaceful resistance movement against a Canadian mining company that was desecrating their lands. Um, you know, our the Mayakechi community was met with a lot of violence, especially from the government where, you know, they were using gas, um, other things to kind of prevent our people. But I really like how the Prensa Comunitaria, which is a, a Mayan Guatemalan um, based um, news news outlet sent to our indigenous women where they were showing the indigenous women stopping the army. And I really like how it was seen, you know, it wasn't patriarchy where, you know, the men were being put in the front and center of these articles. And right now, I haven't looked up the news, but they were actually kind of um, defending their indigenous rights in front of Congress and the United Nations. So hopefully we will see how that turns out. But it shows how, because it gathered a lot of media attention, especially outside of Guatemala, you know, it kind of pressured the government to actually be like, oh, wait a minute, maybe we didn't do the best techniques, mm -hmm. which often tends to happen, right? Our indigenous of movements, course. our peoples are met with a lot of violence, but then you see other things like in Canada with the truckers, they're, they're not really yes. being violent against them. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Or other white settlers who occupy public lands and 
it, there's no problem yeah but if indigenous peoples go to quote public lands to you know harvest traditional foods or medicines or pray at sacred sites are often arrested yeah so there's really still gross injustices in that area wow that's a that's a good story to hear from the mayan people and there was just recently also a landmark case you probably heard about in ecuador the high courts yes i mean said that um there can be no oil and gas exploration on indigenous territories without free prior and informed consent and they're actually trying to set up a protocol and a process where it's implemented. It's not just on paper. So everyone's quite hopeful about that legal victory to see how it get, gets implemented. Yeah, great. And let's um, close. We just have a few minutes left on food um, and your work with um, food sovereignty and, and urban gardening and um, some of the foods that you are working with in the Seattle area with some of the local tribes or some of your traditional foods. Yeah, so um, one of the projects that you know, I'm trying to continue like co-leading. It's like a mutual aid to support our indigenous communities back in Oaxaca, especially as extreme weather conditions are destroying Almilpas, which is, you know, our holistic agricultural system that kind of is a communal harvest. And I think that that's something that, you know, I'm still working on, especially, you know, whether drought or hurricane season is continuing to destroy our crops. And hopefully, um, with this pandemic, right, food insecurity has been something that has been amplified, unfortunately, with a lot of our community members. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do we get foods to them is something that, you know, it's always in our minds, especially for those of us who I feel like everyone who does environmental work who's indigenous ends up doing some food sovereignty. Uh, you have to, exactly. <laughs> you just have to. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's so important. That's great to hear. And as I mentioned in your book, um, in her great book, I can't quite show it here, uh, she asks questions of so many people, really good questions. And um, there's a couple in here that you actually ask, I think it's in the Eco Wars section. Um, oops, I thought I highlighted it here. Where you ask it of the readers, what people can do to basically increase indigenous justice. Um, shoot, let me see, where is it here? Mm, I lost it. Let's see. Well, you basically talk about um, how conservation is a Western construct that was really created to exploit indigenous lands and natural resources. And then you kind of challenge the reader to... Um, to challenge them, what are they going to do to really uplift and recognize the rights of indigenous peoples in national parks? And I thought that was that was great that you did that because national parks are meant to be for all people at all times. And yet they were indigenous people's lands for thousands of years. And yet many indigenous peoples were excluded from them. And a lot of people of color historically have not really been invited or um, welcomed um, or been able to uh, access a lot of the national parks as well. So I like that you're really trying to decolonize the park model as well. Um, if you can say anything more about that with the, some of the national parks you've worked with in your home country and in the U.S. 
Yeah, so I think that whole um, national parks concept is something that manifests from the United States. And, you know, a lot of people don't understand or don't know that national parks can be found now globally, especially throughout the Americas. And I was talking about my Maya Chorti um, lands, which uh, now hosts or houses a national park where, you know, it doesn't necessarily allow indigenous peoples to kind of steward the landscape or it doesn't allow us to practice our ceremonies or traditions that we used to practice practice in our lands right especially in our sacred sites and we see that a lot in the bay area especially in california where land is something that everyone kind of wants because everybody wants to move to california because of these major cities but yet when it comes to indigenous peoples um, they're not even allowed to step foot or they have to fight to get permission to practice their um, ceremonies, especially um, ceremonies are important for them to have in these national parks. And I think the whole concept of national parks and uh, digesting the history is that it was rooted on, you know, the forced removal of indigenous peoples from these lands that somebody was like, oh, these are beautiful lands. I want to preserve mm-hmm. them for the future generations without understanding that the beauty behind those lands was because indigenous peoples were successfully stewarding and caretaking right. of those lands. That's right. Yes, it's the whole deconstruction of the wilderness model, which the environmental movement was completely based on the wilderness model and this idea of untouched, pristine nature, which was a fallacy because it was very touched, like you said, with the hands of a lot of women and men, elders and young people stewarding those areas, those relationships. And again, I love you um, include Enrique Simone's great work and discussion about concentric ecology and breaking down that binary of, you know, human dominating nature or nature being alone without humans. You know, we often go from an anthropocentric to a biocentric worldview. The environmental movement did, right? It can't be human-centered, has to be nature-centered without humans. But then Enrique Simon and um, Dennis Martinez and others um, came up with this concept of concentric ecology that, no, we have to center our relationships with all of these relatives as equals um, and as reciprocal. Yeah. Great. Well, is there anything else you'd like to share about the book at this? I could talk to you all evening <laughs> um, about your wonderful work and that we've been on such parallel paths doing so many exciting things together and, and on parallel um, areas. So thank you so much, Chimigwich, for your extraordinary book and your incredible work. And um, all the listeners out there and viewers, check it out if you haven't picked it up yet. Fresh Banana Leaves. It's a wonderful read. It's powerful. It's not always easy because Dr. Hernandez really talks about, you know, the, the brutal uh, consequences of colonialism and um, healing from that, healing as indigenous people, but the healing that needs to happen with all people um, due to settler colonialism. So really appreciate that. Yeah, and I just want to thank you, Dr. Nelson, because, you know, you are a pioneer in indigenous science and especially, you know, the work that my generation is doing and the future generations are yet to come cannot, could not have happened, right, without indigenous scholars like yourself, like Dr. Kyle White. And I think that it's important for us to acknowledge, you know, the, the fight that the previous generation, you know, started and continues to have so that we can truly liberate our 
our lands and also kind of liberate ourselves in the academic setting. So thank you. And it was an honor to have this conversation, especially, you know, in your presence. <laughs> oh, well, likewise. Thank you. And looking forward to many future collaborations. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lau Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.